Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. So we had planned to record an episode about a different topic today, but Jeff has been playing with a new camera and we've just been talking 45 minutes before we started recording and we realized that this would actually make a good episode. We wasted 45 minutes. We could have just recorded all of that and gotten it together. And it's interesting because Jeff has never shot with a extremely expensive camera. And this is like, this is not as expensive as they come, but you're pretty high up here in the stratosphere. You are the not owner, you are temporarily using a new Hasselblad camera. Explain to us how this came about. I've been doing a lot of freelancing for DP Review, as uh, listeners would know. Um, and so one of the editors at DP Review contacted me and said, uh, hey, would you be interested in shooting a sample gallery of an unannounced camera the next week? So basically the week that we're recording this. And as a freelancer who likes to have work and as someone who's been shooting a lot of um, like it, it turns out that I've sort of turned into the iPhone guy lately on DP review just because I, I have the iPhone and I was able to get other review units from Apple. So I've done several sample galleries over the last couple of months. And so this would just be the same idea. And, and for people who aren't aware, a sample gallery at DP review is really just take the camera, go make a bunch of different photos in different situations so that readers can not only see what the camera is capable of, but honestly to download the files, even the raw files in some cases, and pixel peep and just see what what this camera can produce. So of course I said yes, because it sounded intriguing. And it wasn't until the camera was announced that I realized that it was the new Hasselblad 907X is part of it, and then a CFV100C. We'll explain what that means in a second, but... That's not a very sexy model number, but I guess people who buy this sort of camera know what it means. Exactly. Now, Hasselblad is a brand that is really sort of up there with Leica. There are some people who just really love this in terms of uh, high-end photography. A lot of studio photography is done with this fashion photography. And in this case, this, this back, well, okay. In this case, that CFV100C, that is a digital camera back that can output 100 megapixel images. And the the other portion of it, the 907X, is the quote unquote camera. They call it, they they say this is the camera, but I mean it's the whole thing. But it's the little piece that holds the lens. And when you put them all together, you have a hundred megapixel camera. But because of the history of Hasselblad, if you have, I think it's the Hasselblad 500 series film cameras which are from the 1950s and 1960s, I think, predominantly. You could just take this, this digital back, put it on your film camera, use all your old lenses, and shoot as if you were shooting your film camera. You just end up with 100 megapixel digital images. It's quite an adjustment. It's not only an adjustment 
because of, well, holding a camera that's worth more than anything you've ever bought. No, you've bought a car that's more expensive than that. That's true. That's true. And, and, and we should point out the body for this is, uh, I believe, $8,200, $8,200. The lenses are a couple thousand dollars each. Right. You have two lenses. Um, and so you're, you're at $14,000, $13,000 worth of camera equipment there. Yeah. Yeah. W- w- which is a little intimidating walking around with $14,000 sure. of equipment in my backpack. Well, as I said before we started recording, it's a good thing you have business insurance. Yeah. Because who knows what's going to happen. So one of the things you need to know, if you're not familiar with Hasselblad, um, it's the camera they used on the Apollo missions on the moon. It's famous for that. It was originally designed as a camera where you look down and you see a mirror image of what the lens is seeing, but upside down. And I don't know if it was when we had Michael Kenna on the show here or in another time I talked to him, but he told me that when he started using a Hasselblad, he found it really interesting that he wasn't seeing the image through the camera the way he did with his eyes. And it made him look at images in a more abstract way. Now, today, that's not the case. When you're looking down, you're seeing the image in the right sense, right? That's correct, yeah. So you can shoot looking down, but you can also shoot looking through the LCD on the back? Exactly. There's no viewfinder. So you cannot put this up to your eye in that, that traditional sense. Uh, the, the viewfinder on the back articulates just out. So you can move it so that you are looking down. So you're, you're holding it, say, waist level or maybe chest level and looking down at the screen at what you're photographing. Which, I mean, one of the things that I, that I mentioned when we were talking about this, uh, I feel like I'm fighting lots of muscle memory using this camera because I'm so used to putting a camera up to my face and looking through the viewfinder and framing there. I mean, it's, it, it's just become a natural feeling for me. And so using this camera now, I have to think about what I'm doing more so than with another camera. They do sell a viewfinder for the camera. It's an optical viewfinder that clips onto the top, but you're not seeing what the camera is seeing. It's just basically a lens that lets you see what's in front of you. And depending on which lens you have on the camera, it's going to be different. It's more for lining things up than for actually taking photos. Worth pointing out that Hasselblad also makes a kind of camera you can hold up to your eye. They have a series of medium format digital cameras. If you're familiar with the Fuji GFX, it's the same kind of camera as that. So it's a big, bulky, heavy camera that you can hold up to your eye. But this is the old-fashioned that makes you feel like you've gone back 50 years in the history of photography. And what's really interesting about it is if you do shoot looking down, I don't know how much you've done like that, it is a different perspective. First of all, your, your camera's lower. And second of all, you're thinking about your photograph in a different way. You're not seeing it in all the same detail as when the viewfinder's up to your eye. I see that on my Leica Q3 when I have the um, the back that folds out, right? You can do that with any camera that has a, what do you call it, articulating, articulating. back? So you see it kind of the same way. You're aiming, but you're not really able to see the detail. So this is a new form factor for you. This is a new expensive camera for you. <laughs> what were your first impressions when you started taking pictures other than I can't drop this. I can't drop this. I can't drop this. You showed me you've got one of those peak design anchors on the camera already to make sure you don't drop it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tethered this, uh, tethered it in the sense that, that I need something that I can put around my wrist so that this doesn't just go tumble 
Absolutely. So there's another aspect to this that we haven't mentioned yet that I think was when I first grabbed it was the most jarring thing, and that's the shutter button. So on all of our cameras, uh, the shutter button is typically sort of at the top right edge. This, because it's following that form factor of you're holding it with both hands, you're looking down on it, the shutter button is actually on the lower right front corner. So if you can imagine you're you're cupping the camera in your hand, and so you're still using your index finger of your right hand, but it's it's below the lens. Um, it's where a lot of cameras, that's the button that would uh, release the lens, right? That to unlock and, and turn that. And and so the shutter's there. Furthermore, there's a little uh, dial around it, a little uh, beautifully machined. Uh, it's it's got a little bit of an angle. It's silver. It's I mean, let me just take a pause a moment. The fit and finish on this thing is incredible. I mean, it's it's beautiful. The lens caps are the most beautiful <laughs> lens caps I have ever encountered. And I never thought that I would be excited about lens caps, but they are, they're machined aluminum. They still have the little pinchy, grippy mechanism, but it's so nice. Anyway, uh, sorry, I just got a little lost there in the, in the, <laughs> <laughs> the engineering side of things. Uh, but what's interesting about this dial that's around the shutter button is that's, by default, that's how you change your aperture. So some lenses, like the, the 90 millimeter that I have here, uh, it does have an aperture ring because the, the lens is long enough. But I also have a 28 millimeter that only has a focus ring. So as you are shooting, you are using your index finger to turn that tiny knob to change your aperture. And if you want to change your shutter speed, there's another smaller button just around the corner from that. So on the right-hand side of the body, and if you hold that down and turn the knob, then you're adjusting your shutter speed if you're in manual or shutter priority. And so, like I said, I'm fighting muscle memory, especially, you know, as you said, when I first picked this up, it required me to just throw away everything that I knew about where my hands go, how to change aperture and shutter speed, and, I don't know, just sort of start over and rethink it. Not only that, it's an extremely minimalist camera. There aren't many buttons and dials, right? You've got that one button and dial that you're talking about. The back has a touchscreen, right? Mm -hmm. Other than that, are there any buttons and dials on the camera? There's one other button on the other side of the front, which is the, the, the lens release, okay? But that's, that's all that does. Yeah. And then at the bottom of the touchscreen, there's a row of five physical buttons. So you have your power, your playback, uh, one to bring up settings, and then there's one that will let you change your, um, your display. So like make the histogram visible or, or the, the, the lines uh, visible. And then like, like an X button, which can be used to delete an image. But it's worth noting the, the screen, which is gorgeous, uh, has, I would say, maybe one of my favorite or 
maybe even the best interface of any camera that I've used. Because in addition to using the knob to change your, your shutter speed and aperture, you can bring up a menu that has big, bold numbers. And it, it's a touchscreen, of course. And so all of the settings, if you want to do them on the screen, are all right there. And it's, it's impressively reactive. There's no lag. Um, and you really have everything right there. It's 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 really well designed, even to the point where, like, I've been shooting some long exposures, and I've also because I've had this on a tripod, I don't have a, a like a remote release for it, so I've been setting the self timer for three seconds. So I push the shutter button; it very visibly counts down to three seconds, and then let's say it's a thirty second exposure. It then says exposing at the top starts to count down. But if it's longer than, say, four seconds, the screen turns off to conserve battery power. And then when there are about two seconds or three seconds left of the exposure, it comes back on, counts down, and takes the picture. Like, it's so immediately discernible what's going on. I was a little taken aback at first because <laughs> some cameras are just like, oh, right, yeah, I took a picture at some point. It's in your in your little storage there so you mentioned using a tripod and that's really important with a camera like this because of the position of the shutter button and the aperture and all that this is really designed for a tripod it's hard to use it handheld unless you're in that position looking down right that shutter button is not in a position to hold it up and look at the screen so it's really designed for tripod use and it's pretty heavy isn't it with the lens together Actually, so yeah. It, it's, it's not even that good handheld. There's no uh, image stabilization? There's no image stabilization, which I think is, is one of the big surprises for something like this. Uh, like, I have been shooting quite a bit handheld, but like you said, you really need to sort of uh, you know, tuck into that, that, that photographer's tuck, which is, you know, have your, your elbows really close to you so that you're minimizing the amount of, of movement because... If you are holding it in front of you, which is something like I've done a few portraits so far, and it's been awkward because I don't necessarily want to shoot somebody from my my hip level, because then you're sort of looking up at them. Yeah. But if I hold the camera up, then I'm, you know, looking through it, not through it, but I'm looking at the screen, but that introduces more camera shake because it's it's heavy like like i don't know what the actual weight is we can look that up or put it on the the show notes but it's heavy enough that it's significant weight that makes sense right compared to what you're used to you, you're exactly. used to cameras that unless you have a very heavy lens on it you're used to cameras that weigh less than a pound usually right yeah. less than 500 grams yeah yeah uh, so like this is a real kind of a square chunk of camera, right? <laughs> um, I will also point out, surprisingly, it gets rather warm. And I thought at first that that it was just like the warmth from my hands, but it was it's definitely the, the, the warmth of the camera. Now it's not uncomfortably warm, it's just noticeably warm. Mm. And uh from what I understand, actually the the heat dissipation is better in this than like some earlier models. So you're going to get 
a, a warm camera, which is, I guess, is fine if you're, you know, shooting a landscape somewhere uh, where it's cold. But um, that was like a noticeable thing that, again, like I, I never deal with that. Um, the only time like my Fuji gets warm is if you're shooting video. Uh, and I just don't shoot a lot of video. So, well, this Hasselblad is doing a live view of 100 megapixels. So it's working. Yeah. Its little computer chip is doing a lot to render that and show it on the back display. Exactly. You were talking about shooting portraits. You can get up on a ladder to get into a better position to shoot portraits. And I've often seen in studio, when you've seen films of people shooting in a studio, that they get up on ladders. Uh, now, I don't remember which cameras they're using, but it would be logical that if you're using a Hasselblad, you might want to do that. Yeah. So in addition to carrying the camera to the tripod, you need to get a ladder or at least a step stool when you go out to shoot <laughs> your pictures. Because you have to create, what, 50, 100 photos for DP review? And you've already done a couple hundred, but they're not all keepers, obviously. Right. So you need to take a lot more photos in a lot of different areas to show the capabilities of the camera. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, and uh, I mean, th this will all be passed by the time you listen to this episode. But um, basically, we have this for a week and then it has to go back to Hasselblad. So, yeah, um, I've been sort of focused on something else I want to mention about this that is interesting. So in terms of the storage, this camera doesn't accept SD cards. It only accepts one CF Express Type B card, which I don't have. However, it also includes in the body one terabyte SSD. So I've not had to worry about cards at all because it's just storing to, let me say that again, one terabyte of internal storage, which is rather glorious. I know you've experienced this with your Leica too, where that... No, mine doesn't have internal storage. Oh, um, oh I thought the, yours did. The, the, no, the Leica M11 does. I don't remember how much it is. It's not a terabyte. Um, right. But the, the Q series doesn't have internal storage yet. They've only done this recently on the M, and I guess the next Q would probably have it. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely one of those things where now that I've experienced it, like, why doesn't every camera have some sort of internal storage? I mean, even if it's just 64 gigs or 128 gig, well, for this, that wouldn't be as, as, as useful because it takes such huge pictures. Your RAW files are more than 200 megabytes. Yeah, the RAW files are like 212, 220 uh, per image. And, and you shared a few with me, and I opened them on my M1 iMac, which is three, almost three years old. Mm-hmm. And I could tell that my Mac was struggling a bit. Now, when I bought this Mac, I figured I'm going to keep it five years. I'm not buying a Hasselblad, so I don't have to worry. But if you are <laughs> working with files that big, you would need a faster Mac, that's for sure, or a faster computer. Definitely. You know, we're talking about this in the way that we would talk about a Ferrari or a Bentley, right? This is not a camera for everyone. Um, I, I, there, maybe there's people listening who own Hasselblads or who desire Hasselblads, and I can understand it. To me... If you, so my Leica Q is much cheaper than a Leica M11 with a lens, right? I believe it's okay. $5,300 in the US. Um, if you get a Leica M11, it's like 8000 8500 Then you've got another few hundred uh, for a lens. So you could put the Hasselblad that you have with a lens at the same price as a Leica M11 with a lens. It's about that kind of price. Yeah. The difference is that Leica was designed to be a camera for carrying around. Originally, it was designed to be a portable camera, and the Hasselblad isn't. Now, if you take landscape photos, 
and you want to shoot on a tripod, then the Hasselblad might be for you. If you're a studio photographer, obviously no-brainer because you're making money from your pictures and this is what you need. Although, do you need it? I mean, the pictures you're taking are lovely, but do you need it? I personally don't need it. Um, and and uh, to be perfectly honest, I don't know if, if I even want it. And that's in large part, and, and you, you touched on this, for the type of photography that I do, I tend to do a wide variety of things. And it's been interesting shooting this because I can't just, I mean, I can, but there are the compromises of me just going out and, and shooting whatever, right? It's just not as as straightforward as I'm going to bring the camera to my face and snap a picture. Now, like, I, I can do that, but this kind of forces you to think in a different way. And, and that can be a good thing because it makes you take photographs in a slow, deliberate fashion. Yeah. Of course, you're not going to do street photography like that where you want to catch a moment. But if you want to take slow photos, the Hasselblad would force you to take slow photos. So if you're listening and you want to you change your photography and take slow photos, sell your car and buy the Hasselblad, you could do the same thing with another camera. You can do the slow, intentional, deliberative type of photography. But with the Hasselblad, you have far fewer choices. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's certainly capable. And actually, I've seen people say this could be a street camera. It's capable. Yeah. Well, for $8,200, it better well yeah. be capable. <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, I, I've seen people, uh, other reviewers uh, say that, that like you absolutely could use this as a street camera because it is small. It is compact. Um, actually, like you kind of have that that benefit of not putting it up to your eyes and sort of being like, hey, I'm a photographer and I'm taking a picture right now, like having it at, at your waist the way some people will, will do street photography. It just doesn't feel like it's made for that. So actually, I'll put a couple of links in the show notes to some, some video reviews. Uh, one was at The Verge and one was by a photographer named uh, Manny Ortiz, I think. Uh, who is a New York photographer, and he did some studio work and some some street photography with it. So it's certainly capable, but by far it's not my first choice. Another thing I need to point out here is that you know we're talking about a hundred megapixel images, and even though it has what appears to be a robust processor, robust electronics, this is still a slow camera in terms of you're going to take a picture. You're going to wait a second for it to do its thing. I actually have not even tried the burst mode yet. I don't imagine it has a very fast burst mode because like, you were not going to take this and go shoot sports. It's just, it's just really not well, made for Wait it. a second. Wait a second. Burst mode is really important um, for studio photography when you've got models that are moving around. According to the data sheet, it can shoot up to 3.3 frames per second in 14-bit color depth, and it offers both 14 and 16. Now, 3.3 per second is click, 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 click. That's pretty fast. Yeah. And that would be ideal for studio where you have models in motion, right? Yeah, I think, I think for, for a, a studio setting, that would be fine. Um, you know, th three shots per second is not fast compared to most everything else if you're talking about burst modes. So, um, you know, you're not going to go shoot a race or soccer or anything like that. But, you know, it's 
Actually, no, but it's just, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's no, but some cameras are designed for some things, right? Yeah. There are expensive, there are infrared cameras, there are expensive cameras, you know, for, I don't know, you have big lens for shooting wildlife and stuff. This is a camera that has certain use cases. Studio is the first by far. Landscapes is the second. Yeah. Um, A lot of landscape photographers, particularly shooting film, use Hasselblads. Because even the film cameras have larger lenses and larger apertures. And, you know, the size of the film is much bigger than 35 millimeter film. It's two and a half inch uh, film. So you're getting much more out of what you're shooting, right? It's not just more resolution. It's a bigger picture. So it's not a camera for everything. It's not a camera for every use. I could see it as a camera for product photos, but you wouldn't need 100 pixels for, for product photos if you want... 50, you get the Fuji GFX or the new Sony that's 60 megapixels or the Leica Q3 that's 60 megapixels, or you get a mirror 40 or 47, is it, with the Fuji film? I mean, there aren't many uses where you need that many megapixels. As we've said many times, resolution is great when you want to crop. Mm-hmm. Um, so for landscape photos. Uh, now, this is a 4-3 aspect ratio. And uh, I was looking at some of the photos you shot and said, well, you can make a wonderful panoramic photo from this and still have great detail. And that's what you're going to get with the 100 megapixels. It's croppability. We went from a stage when resolution was important overall, when we went from 8 to 12 to 16 to 24 megapixels. Now we're at the stage where resolution is important so you can crop afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Or you're doing, again, like what this is designed for, you're doing high-end catalog fashion billboard type work where you just like you need all the pixels that you can get for retouching and processing and all of that uh which i mean this is designed exactly for that now i'm curious if in a few years we're like you know we thought that 40 megapixels was enough (laughs) but really having 100 megapixels on every camera is just so much better but you know that's that's for the future right now Something like this is amazing to be able to zoom in 200, 400% and get really good detail and not very much pixelation, even just just for the pure pleasure of doing it. There you go. Exactly. That is, this is a camera for the pure pleasure of doing it. And you're going to pay for that pleasure, but that's okay. Like, I, th- I think it delivers. Also, a, a total side, side note. Uh, it has an app, like Hasselblad has their app. And one of the things that I've, I've not really looked into yet, just because I'm shooting and not really processing, uh, a lot of people really like the color science of Hasselblad and how the colors turn out. Uh, but they also have, uh, Hasselblad has its own app for rendering all of that. But also the iPhone app, you can transfer your RAW files directly to your phone which most cameras will only do JPEGs instead, which is also kind of cool because then, you know, I could take that raw file and throw it into Lightroom, do some quick corrections or whatever. It's not really the use case, but I just think that it would, I just think that it's a nice, like modern approach to what a photographer might want to do. I can do that with my Leica Q3 with the Leica app. It can also uh, download the raw files. It connects via Bluetooth and then Wi-Fi. The camera yeah. sets up its own Wi-Fi network. It's actually quite good. You can use it to um, focus and take pictures from 
the app, yep. uh, as well as um, transferring photos, putting them in your library, uh, accessing them, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, I mean, the high-end cameras do that. Uh, I haven't used, I mean, I haven't had a Fujifilm camera for a while. I remember the last Fujifilm app that came out was so bad that no one wanted to use it. I don't know if they've improved it yet. They've improved it, but... This seems to me to be something that every camera should do to be able to transfer raw files, but we're not there. I just want to point out, we were talking about burst mode. One of the reasons it can only do 3.3 frames per second is because it's 100 megapixels. It's got to read all that data. Imagine if it was only 50 megapixels, it could do twice as much, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Oh, and also we should probably point out that a difference between this and a previous one is this has phase detect autofocus and it can do person, like like facial detect uh, autofocus. So uh, it's not fast, especially compared to things like Sony or um, uh, Canon. But if you are shooting people, it will actually, you know, follow them and and focus on them, uh, which is nice because from what I gather, uh, the earlier version of this, the the 50C, I think, uh, could not do that. So that brings it up into a more uh, modern use rather than having to, I mean, it is not fast. Let's not even pretend that it's, it's, it's responsive, but you will get a in-focus person. Maybe not, well, it doesn't look for their eyes, but it will do the face, and that's most of it. Have you been using manual focusing at all? Um, no, actually not yet. I need to. What? I mean, the whole point of this camera <laughs> is that it's slow. You need to slow everything down. Get I'm into not the that manual slow. Focus. I want. I want to know how the focus ring feels. Can you oh, turn it yeah, now yeah. and tell me? Oh, because um, one yes. of the things about the Leica Q3 is the focus ring is so smooth. These are very, very smooth. And actually, on on this 90, the aperture ring um, has a little switch, so you can do so that's just smooth, or um, has like just a tiny bit of tick, 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 tick. Uh, you know. For, for each of the, the aperture stops. I mean, the fit and the build quality is just amazing. The the focus the, ring the, is Like Leica, like these are handmade cameras. These are, you know, these are not made in factory. Well, they're made in factories, but, but by people and not machines. So it's a different kind of camera. We don't know if your sample gallery is going to be online by the time this episode comes out. We're recording on the 30th of January, and this episode releases on the 9th of February. So if the sample gallery is available, we'll put a link to it. Either way, we'll put a few photos that Jeff's taken into the show notes. And I'm sad for you, Jeff, that you only get to use this camera for a week. But it's a wonderful learning experience to be able to use a camera of this quality. It absolutely is. Like, like I, I feel very uh, fortunate that somebody can say, hey, do you want to go shoot this really exceptional, expensive camera even if it's just for a week and just just get hands on because i mean this kind of follows a theme that we've had in photoactive from the very beginning exposing to different types of photography you know it, usually it's just we're talking to people who do different types of photography but now this is also being able to shoot with different types of cameras and gear so now we're experts now we are experts yes <laughs> Okay, we're going to skip snapshots for this episode. And until next time, Jeff, enjoy the rest of your short tenure as a Hasselblad photographer. Yeah, actually, this was going to be my snapshot. So thank you, everybody, for listening to our 30-minute snapshot. (laughs) And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. 
You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast. 